Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast, produced by Bob and Brad, the two most famous physical therapists on the internet, in our opinion, of course, and I'm one of them. <laughs> uh, so my name is Bob. I'm exactly one half of the Bob and Brad team. And today it is a real treat. Um, we are going to be having Dr. Stuart McGill as our guest. He's, uh, I'm going to read some of the stuff here, Professor Emeritus at the University of Waterloo. Uh, he was a professor for 30 years. He's now retired. Um, he's still, well, now with COVID, he's not, but occasionally he's still seeing patients that fly in from all, all over the world. He sees some of the best athletes you can think of and heads of state and politicians and actors. Um, they all hear about him. They, He's the guy. I mean, if you have back pain, he is the guy. And, and we're going to talk about his book, The Back, uh, back Mechanic, uh, best book I have ever seen on, on back disorders and how to treat it, how to assess yourself, and how to treat yourself. So I'm, I've bought many of these copies for uh, family members, and I, I will continue to do so. Um, just to let you know, his work, uh, he produced over 240 peer-reviewed scientific journal papers. He's done several textbooks. I have two of them. And uh, you can check them out. They're on, uh, still on Amazon. Um, he's mentored over 37 graduate students. Um, he's taught thousands of clinicians and practitioners. Again, he is the guy. He is the guy. And you can check out his website, too. Uh, www.backfitpro, uh, just like it sounds, backfitpro. So again, join me in welcoming Dr. McGill. Welcome, Dr. McGill. It is such an honor. Well, thanks. Th thanks very much, Bob. I've watched a number of your videos before, so I feel like we're old friends and uh we should have a bowl of peanuts and and a couple of beers too i agree 100 <laughs> we'll have to do that so. a couple of northern boys yeah that's right that's right we're tough so um i, I really big fan i mean i just want to say this and, and in my mind you're the guy I, you know i always look for experts in whether it's business or knee injuries or neck injuries and with backs you are the guy i mean i i, I first see what you say and i'll see what other people say but uh, i'm you're the guy i follow so <laughs> I, to, to say I, that. I i i have to tell you i uh do the same shortcuts as well if uh uh, I, I need to learn something about a vehicle or whatever. I go to the guy right. who fixes uh, a few thousand of them. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, usually they uh, can cut to the chase. Yeah, you can trust them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to just jump right into the questions, if that's okay. And so sure. we're going to start off with uh, how would you uh, manage to, or treat someone who's got both a herniated disc and spinal stenosis? So they're flexion intolerant and extension intolerant to some extent too. Right. Every, I don't have uh, a set formula for back pain or even subcategories of back pain. Every single person that I see has already been to a few clinicians and they failed. So uh, if they were easy to fix, they would have been fixed by now. 
every single patient with us starts with an assessment, a fairly thorough assessment, so I can really get some precision on the mechanism of their pains and uh, the first order of business, of course, is to uh, stop the cause, if possible, sure. wind down the pain sensitivity, and then, of course, try and rebuild their body strategically to create robustness. So you use two interesting words, stenosis. Well, what stenosis, stenosis pardon me, is usually a radiological diagnosis where a radiologist has seen a narrowing of. So that's the root word of stenosis. Well, that could be a disc bulge. It could be a uh, older person now with some arthritic bone activity that has grown and now narrowed down either the lateral foramen or the, 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 the major uh, canal for the spinal cord. So that doesn't mean too much. I need a lot more details to fill in around stenosis. But if we were to take a person who's younger, has a disc bulge and stenosis, that just could mean they've got radiating symptoms. Sure. And uh, the, the assessment would show what postures trigger the pain what motions trigger the pain, what specific loads trigger the pain. Is there, uh, because the joint may be a bit flatter now, is there a little bit of instability that is also triggering the pain? So all of these have characters and uh, form patterns. Uh, so I'm, I'm not trying to avoid your question, but sure. it all comes down to the, uh, to the assessment. But um, yeah, maybe... Sorry. What you're saying too is that um, uh, we can't rely on the MRI, or, or I think you call MRs, uh, because you might have stenosis, but then you'll find out that that really is not symptomatic. Exactly. So, you know, an MRI is a picture. And what the MRI shows is the person's full history, historical uh, life, really. And, uh, you know, you can look at my face, it has wrinkles and scars and that kind of thing. Sure. So w when you take a picture of someone's spine, is the feature that you're looking at a scar, something that was done many years ago and no longer is a pain source, or is it a fresh wound? So what's a wound and what's a scar? And this is a, a fundamental uh, flaw, I think, when a radiologist reads a MR image of, of someone's spine uh, without seeing the person. They don't sure. know if that person is a world champion sprinter or power lifter, or they are just a couch potato, and they have no idea what their pain uh, mechanisms are. So when sure. we do an assessment, we get a context then. So then when we look at the MRI, we can say, well, we already know the pain is coming from the fourth lumbar root. Uh, as an example, gotcha. your, your little toes are, are buzzing away. You've got pain in your buttocks and, and this kind of thing. And uh, then we know, let's look at the lumbar fourth root and uh, see what the mechanism is. And does it correlate one-to-one -one with what the assessment shows? Got it. So, so my point is the, the MRs can be very, very helpful. 
you know, right. I'm just thinking of uh, the next patient I see this afternoon. I've already seen the MRs. They have a, a Tarloff cyst in uh, the, uh, the fifth lumbar root. So I know that if I can create some tension on that nerve root and that's their symptoms and I already know they don't tolerate driving. So do you see, I'm I'm getting real context now to interpret that MR very specifically. Gotcha. Well, um, I I like to segue into your books. And uh, the reason is because for those that don't have access to you, I feel this is the next best thing, um, especially the, the back mechanic. Um, which is, I don't know, do you know the book, uh, Ben Hogan's Five Lessons? It's a classic book on golf. I do know it, actually, yes. And the thing that always struck me about that book was how well things were explained, especially with diagrams and kind of examples. And I felt the same thing when I went and got to your book. Um, This really is my favorite book to recommend on back pain. I bought it for many people. I bought it for my nephew. Um, it just it, uh, explains it so well, and it t- kind of takes you through self-assessment. But I'd like you to maybe talk about it a little bit, and and um, and then I'd like to know if, if you've determined the effectiveness of that book at all. Uh, I don't know how you track that, but. <laughs> Okay, well, there's a couple of uh, questions there. First of all, the book, I I should just go back a little bit. I wrote my first textbook for clinicians in the year 2000. And, you know, low back disorders is quite a heavy textbook. And uh, I, yes, I never, I never in a million years thought I would uh, write a book for the lay public. But some savvy people, and then actually a book publisher, contacted me and said, you know, we struggled through back dis- uh, low back disorders. It's a heavy read. Right. Could you make that for the lay public? And I said, yeah. well, I've never, I've never written for the lay audience. I just have uh, taught uh, clinicians, as you know. And uh, they said, well, um, you should uh, think about this. And we want a title, Fix Your Low Back in Three Easy Steps. And I said, well, that's oh. not possible. I can't do it. Sure. And so... I wrote back mechanic for the lay public, but you know, Bob, it took me five years and the, the struggle was how can I make it uh, truthful? You can't fix back pain in three easy steps. It's not possible. As you know, the book is 17 chapters and it takes the person through a self-assessment of their pain. And based on these signs, these are different strategies to, uh, to follow. But uh, it was such a struggle to get the content valid and not tell a lie, but still make it consumable for the reader. So it was one of those things, you know, what, what, what's the minimum information without compromising the truth? And that took me five years. So if I found the balance, that's uh, good. The, the, the second part of the question, how effective is it, is a fabulous question, but I don't know how to measure that except to say, well, you could look at the reviews on Amazon, for example. Yeah. Um, But I do know we were the only clinic that I've known when I was a, I was a professor at the university of Waterloo for 32 years. And I started a, an experimental back pain clinic there. And we followed up with every patient that we saw 
Uh, I don't know any other clinic that's done this. Oh, that's so we know we know exactly what they came in with. We know whether they complied. We know how they were two years later. Um, we know what the mechanism of their pain was, et cetera, et cetera. So I kept very uh, exact statistics. So I can give you those okay. statistics if you like. Sure, so it's like not quite the book, but I can tell you how we did. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying it was an experimental clinic and we didn't get the average generic back pain right. person. We you got had the, the worst of the worst. We got the worst of the worst. We got yeah. the ones who were, some of them had lifetime compensation for their backs and sure. whatnot. But anyway, it depends on how you ask the questions about effectiveness. So here, here's one category, and this was the most spectacular statistic. So I'll start with that one. If you were a patient who was told you've tried everything, you've done physical therapy, chiropractic, yoga, you've been to the surgical consults, you've seen the shrink, et cetera, et cetera. The last thing for you is surgery. Now, if that's the category that you came in with, 95% of those patients were, were able to avoid surgery following what we oh, suggested amazing. they do. And after two years, we're glad that they did. Now that's the most impressive statistic. But if we were to subcategorize the pain mechanism into your flexion intolerant, simply that bending forward causes your pain. Sure. 48% of those patients said they had an excellent outcome. If you were extension intolerant, believe it or not, 75%. Now, so we were more effective with the extension intolerant than the flexion intolerant. If you were both, both flexion and extension intolerant, in other words, you were motion intolerant, we had an 80% success rate. If you had flexion intolerance plus compression intolerance, so you sat in a chair, you grabbed the seat pan of the chair and you pulled up, and if that triggered your pain, our success went down to 33% of an excellent uh, outcome. Then if we uh, subcategorized your pain based on if we confirmed the pain was from the disc, 47%. If the pain was from the disc and the facets, so they're further along now sure. in the cascade of back pain, we had a 78%. Wow. And then we based then we subcategorized cutting it a different way on clinical tests if you scored a positive on this clinical test what was our chance for success rate so the uh, prone quiet lay on a table. If that took your pain away, we called that the McKenzie test. Uh, we had a 50% chance of uh, excellent outcome. The shear instability test. So if you scored negative on the prone uh, instability yeah. test, we had a 50% uh, success rate. Sorry, I'm just reading these scores. Yeah. Uh, if, if you were positive on that, we had a 50%. But if you had negative, we had an 80% chance. Oh. And then we got into, uh, you know, uh, did you experience improvement after coming to the university clinic? Do you know 19% couldn't remember that they even came? 
Oh, really? So, yeah. So just to show you how bad some of them were, they were so addled on opioids. Oh my and, gosh. Yeah. You know, so we, we really, uh, had, uh, really uh, changed lives there. Yeah. So when you, when you take a person who was given a zero chance for success, uh, that's the context that you need to consume those numbers. Well, now, I, I haven't been at the university for five years, so sure. I, I've just been seeing patients uh, here at BackFit Pro, and uh, I haven't been as diligent with follow-up, I must admit. But are, these are, are some of your disciples still there? I mean, you're, no. Uh, no, well, with COVID, uh, no one's anywhere, I oh, suppose, at, okay. at least here. But most of my patients, Bob, fly in. They do. Oh, yeah. They, they come from around the world. Gotcha. So over the past year, I've just been seeing them uh, online, which uh, right. is I certainly mean, a challenge. Heads of state and famous athletes, and if I remember, heard you right, correct? I've... Uh, seen uh people from quite a number of royal families around wow. the world, top politicians uh yes uh, many many uh olympians and uh athletes i don't know how they ever hear about us yeah. <laughs> here in ontario but uh, uh I, th I think it's word of mouth that uh sure. someone will yep when you were uh doing this book then the back mechanic um, or back mechanic, um, did you like you create a section and maybe go and see, check it with a patient to see if they understood that section? Do you know what I mean? Kind of, I, yeah, I, I think I do know what you mean. Not really. I would write uh, a draft and then I would have readers of the draft and oh, some sure. of them were, were lay people and some were clinicians. Good, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I used my network of uh, friends and uh, uh, and also I can't spell, never have been able to. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, to have a few of those sorts of uh, uh English skill readers. <laughs> well, again, I just I, I want to give one more boost to the book, and we'll mention it later again. Though it's just really well worth your time if you have back pain to to check this out because you, you can self-assess and and then uh, self-treat basically, and then at that point you can maybe go on to find a practitioner that that could help you, and maybe in addition. But... Yeah, I, I think it's important to always be savvy. And that allows you to really have a target with the clinician and it helps them to work with the uh, right. pain person a, a lot more efficiently. So, you know, it's like taking your car into uh, the, the auto shop. Uh, you know, if the guy says, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. So um, if they go to your website, uh, I want to make sure I got this right. Uh, Backfit Pro, www.backfitpro, just like it sounds, .com. They can actually find people who have studied underneath you. Is the master clinicians, and there's the uh, certified practitioners that they. Can yes, we have two levels of uh, clinicians. 
Uh, those who've taken our courses, so I put all my courses online with this virus situation, um, the clinicians would take the courses and there's some hands-on skill development sections with uh, this very small enrollment with our instructors. And then they have to write an exam and then they have a practical exam. So they bring a patient online and they have to uh, show real skill in assessment and in coaching the person out of pain. Okay. Um, and then if they pass that, they are certified in our method. But I've, I still haven't seen them at this point. Then sure. we have the highest level, which is what we call our master clinicians. And I've worked with them personally and uh, made sure that if I send them 20 challenging and different back pain patients, they will get 18 of those 20 better. That's oh, wow. what I, I, I want out of them. There's some so pressure both, there. <laughs> well, there is. There is. But uh, my name's on it. Sure. And uh, I need confidence that I can send them 20 back pain patients and they are going to have the level of, of success. So it's not uh, an easy, it's very difficult for me, as you can imagine, to right. spend that amount of time with a person and mentor them through, uh, are they confident and competent at reading images? Can they read a person? Can you sit in front of a person and extract information out of them? Sure. You know, I remember having a patient who uh, won the poker stars in Vegas. And I thought, well, this is fabulous. I'm not going to let this guy go. I'm going to learn as much about him as I could. And I even got out cards and I said, you know, what card do I have in my hand? And I, I got him to tell me what he is reading in me, my card, so that when I'm with a back pain patient and I do a small provocation, I can see it in their eyebrow. I can see yeah. it in the depth of their breath or, you know, with our master clinicians, I'll pluck a mustache hair and put it under a page of the phone book and they've got to find it now, two oh pages, God. now three pages. So when they're palpating a person's back and they get that little nerve to trigger, boom, yeah. little light. Did you feel that motor unit fire? And if you can't, you're not reading the level that I need in that uh, patient. So anyway, these are all reading people is. Uh, so you learn the uh, tells of back pain. Uh, uh, poker. They call uh, well, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I had a uh, one time a patient of uh, the U.S. Homeland Security, you know, the people who uh, control yeah. our borders. And I had one of the uh, people who was the head of interrogation, oh, basically. Sure. So when you get pulled back into the back room, they know how to find yeah. out if you're for real or not. And uh, I, uh, he came to BackFitPro, which our assessment room begins in another room on leather couches with two and a half pound density foam. They sit in front of a fireplace and the fire is going. I sit at 45 degrees off sure. from them. It's all yeah. laid out. So I'm not confrontational. I'm sitting at the same level. Right. And the way that we uh, get them to speak freely and then pose very specific questions. In any case, at the end of it all, he said to me, 
That was the most masterful information extraction I've ever been through. Where did you learn all of this? And I said, well, I learned it from uh, you guys. So to become a master clinician, it, the, the skills never end, do they? You're sure. Always, that's exactly right. And that's know, what's fun about it. And when you said at the beginning, which showed such wisdom, who's the person who knows about these things? And, you know, if, if you've ever run across a criminal who preys on people and you sure. learn, what does that criminal know about finding the mark? I wish every exactly. clinician knew that because then they would see the pain is the gun and how patients come in with uh, PTSD because they do not know the next time the gun gets put to their head and someone slams a knife in their back, uh, triggering horrendous acute uh, back pain. And they are emotionally shattered. Uh, You you know, we we know the the full, but who's the expert on that? Am I going to learn that in medical school? No, I'm going to get a much more insight into uh, that talking about uh, these sorts of things with, with with criminals, with war vets, with you know, just have exactly. good conversations. And and one thing I have learned in this life is everyone has an expertise, and they're so yeah. fascinating when you get to it. You can always learn from people, no matter who they are. And it's, yeah, it's yeah, expert. yeah. So I, I know this is a bit jumping around, but I want to stay to the order of the questions. Um, so um, your thoughts on traction devices or inversion tables? Um, yeah. Always have questions about these. Yeah. Yes. You know, I don't want to seem as though I'm avoiding questions because all of these questions, there's so many ways to view them. Um, so I'll start answering that one with science. Uh, oh, the, I'm going back 25 years when we did a study on uh, inversion tables, and there was no question that the spine lengthens with 15 minutes of hanging. And the mechanism was, as you know, the discs are hydrophilic. If we take off the hydrostatic gravity pressure, uh, they suck up fluid. And uh, but 15 minutes after getting off the inversion table and just walking around all that extra height and joint space and whatnot is now gone. Now, what you did do is you flushed the disc and that's how it gets its nutrition and clears out wastes and, and whatnot. It's just that, that gravitational squeeze during the day and the nighttime uh, rehydrogenization uh, of water. So the, 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 that's what I think the mechanism is. It's very crude, however. So there are some people who tend to be older who will say, you know, uh, that that helps me a bit, but it gives me a bit of a headache and and that kind of a thing. So we would never do it. Sure. We, 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 We would much rather have the person lay on a table and we will manually pull on their legs. Now, say they have some pelvic ring issues an SI joint is a little bit painful. If we can externally rotate through the ankles as we're pulling or internally rotate, one of the two can, can suddenly make the, uh, uh, 
the, the treatment, let me just qualify that, um, more effective. If they have a open fissured posterior disc bulge and we can pull in traction and I can do what's called a windshield wiper effect on their hands like this and just get the pelvis to roll ever so slightly. And I've measured this on MRI, we can vacuum in some disc bulges within 15 minutes just with that gentle, it's not a floppy push-up, it's, it's a rolling side-to-side -side rotational. Um, now, it, it of course doesn't work for everybody, but, uh, or I might just pick up their legs a little bit when I'm pulling in traction. And if we already have measured um, that there's a pain trigger associated with a femoral root, as we flex their knees, as we, you should be able to feel, oh yeah, that right leg, they're already fighting me now with the sure. tension from the femoral nerve root, which I feel right away. So the assessment just gets more precise and now the treatment can become more precise uh, doing it uh, with my hands. So that's why I would favor clinical expert precision over a inversion table any day of the week. And now I'm going to reverse the whole thing back just to finish this off. Um, I've worked with uh, a few masters athletes over the years, and, and I can think of the American powerlifter who holds the US powerlifting record for men over 70 years of age. Oh, After wow. every single deadlift, he hangs from a bar. Yeah, so when you're that old, you have to create more capacity for the next lift. Otherwise, you, you, you couldn't stand the sure. uh, in, intensity and the cumulative effects of training. So uh, we, we restore his spine through a hanging technique after every single lift. So there you go. Do you see there, there's no generic sure. answer, but if we have details, we can get to what is best for the individual. I'm sorry, that was a bit long-winded, but. No, not at all. I, I know in the book too, you'll recommend for people like uh, if they're on a walk and they find a, a cement bench to lean on the back of the bench with their arms straight to give a little traction to their back to, if it, if it does give them relief. Yes. Um, to do it throughout a walk, to extend their walk maybe. Yes. Uh, as you know, the typical central stenosis uh, recommendation from the average clinician is to ride a bike, flex, walk with a walker. And yet we find that uh, almost half of those people do better with what we call a park bench decompression. And if I just pull this patient table over just a little bit so yes. that you can see me, um, what you were describing for the folks to see, right. I'm going to externally rotate and just put the heels of my hands. Now this could be the bumper of a pickup truck out walking, sure. could be the, the back of a park bench. So that's why we call it the park bench decompression. But I baby step away and then I allow my hips to approach the bench, get up on my toes, and now I post down with latissimus dorsi and my pecs. And I just now let my knees sag and take a little bit of weight. So it's slight extension with a little bit of traction. 
And then the person might say, you know, I have walking, I have difficulty walking more than five minutes. So we'll say, good, go for a walk for four minutes. Don't trigger the symptom. Decompress as we just showed you. And they'll say, you know what? That just took my pain away. Good, go walk another four minutes and repeat. Five cycles of that for the first time in two years, you've now walked 20 minutes. And that uh, will, will never cure their central stenosis, but it could be a very effective management strategy to extend the length of time that they're able to. Uh, you're kind of answering the question. I, I know uh, one of the future questions I have is talking about uh, that scenario where the person has the shopping cart syndrome or whatever, and they feel better flex forward. So over time, they flex more and more and more, and they really lose any ability to extend at all. So that's somewhat the answer, correct? It's, well, it could be. It could be. There are uh, some, I mean, ultimately, you will, uh, I've got a family member that we're struggling with right now who's sure. really reaching the end ability of, uh, well, the, their, their body is <laughs> pretty much worn out. They're yeah. 90. Yeah. And uh, that strategy isn't going to work anymore. Right. And right. Uh, unfortunately, they have to sit. So, yeah. you know, uh, but what you do want to do is, is maximize the years of ability for sure. Sure. Gotcha. 100%. 100%. Okay. Um, let's see where I'm at here. Oh, I've got to bring this one up or Brad will kill me. So Brad has spondylolisthesis and uh, he loves doing knees to chest. He feels like he gets some relief from it. And I know yes. you've, you've said, I really don't understand what you're saying exactly here, but it, it's a stretch reflex. So what is happening? Why do you feel it shouldn't be done? Well, I have had people comment about this before because in the back mechanic, I show a figure and I call them the silly stretches. And when you write a book, you can't answer everybody's back pain question. Right. So you try and get the biggest majority with right. this particular pattern. Otherwise I'm writing low back disorders again and it's exactly. the average person can't consume it. So that's the issue. Um, but what I'm against here is there'll be a surgeon who says, oh, you've got back pain. Pull your knees to the chest before you get out of bed in the morning and you'll, you'll, you'll be right as rain. Now, what, for everybody with back pain? Right. And uh, so that's, that's my issue. But for most people who get a little bit of relief by doing that, if they stop doing it, they'll get better. And here's what I mean. So they've been doing that for three or four years. If it worked, sure. they would have got better by now, but it didn't. And usually when they pull their knees to their chest, they are creating a stretch reflex, which gives 15 to 20 minutes of analgesia. And uh, uh, they, they get this little jolly euphoria it's very short-lived. And in another hour, they're feeling as though they have to pull their knees to their chest. Sure. So the usual mechanism is if they avoid that and every time they want to pull their knees to their chest, just lay quietly on their tummy. Do that for a week. And then tell me if for the first time now that need to pull their chests is starting to go away. 
In other words, that sensitivity, that nag is no longer there. Sure. Um, so, you know, even people with a disc bulge with an open fissure where flexion makes the disc bulge grow, they still get that false read, the neurological sure. jolly by pulling their knees to their chest. Now, when you get into a specific situation like thesis, which is for folks who don't know, the uh, facet joints are the joints behind the uh, spinal column and the discs and they guide motion. But do you see if I create micro movements like this, um, and then if you break this bone right here, that allows the, the vertebra to slip forward. Mm -hmm. So when you pull your knees to your chest, sometimes it resets the joint back into an unstressed position. So it, it's a very special condition, spondylolisthesis. So that might be the cause. It might sure. be that he's listening to the stretch reflex. Generally speaking, though, with a spondy, it means it's unstable. So the joint has a sheer laxity to it. Uh, if he could employ the techniques of muscular bracing, which is a tuned level of contraction, uh, I suspect we could uh, reduce those symptoms and his want and need. Ask him to call me. <laughs> uh, I, he, he does a lot of core strengthening um uh, a lot and uh, i think his level is actually fused it looks like it's actually fused at that level now um, oh, well that that, that may, may very well be yeah. yeah um so but i i think it is the stretch reflex <laughs> if i were to guess that where he's getting relief from um, yes, it, it's temporary and it's, uh, but you explained it well. So I can well, here, here, here's, a, here's a thought for you, Bob, what I would have them do now, you're Minnesota boys and you know, baseball. Yeah. So if, if you could ask him, can you still hear me? Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Stand tall, make a V with your thumb and your finger, slide your hands down your thighs and grab your knees hard as if you're playing shortstop in the infield. Now, every American guy knows this. Now, notice that I didn't bend my knees and I'm upright. My knees sure. still stay over the middle of my foot. Now, play with the curve of the back. And if he's able to become a camel and then a cat and find that little sweet spot spinal position, and then add a little bit of stiffness by poking sure. your fingers into the abdominal wall and then pushing the fingers out. Now tune the curve and then tune that amount of bracing. And then the last piece is put your shoulders into your back pocket, anti-shrug down, and now don't lift with your back, pull your hips through. It's quite a different neurology when you think about it. Pull your hips through and then you know, pick up something of, of note, pull your hips through. And all of a sudden, a person with a spondy and that need to bend the spine to get the neurological jolly, do what I've just said and see if all of a sudden now, 
we've got him moving heavier things with zero pain. And then his brain says, aha, I've got it now. Okay. okay. And this, uh, for anybody who like the de details on that besides they could watch it again and again but it's, it's also in the back mechanic you explain oh, how to do uh, that uh, of course it is and then uh you know we'll add a little bit of uh now again american boys know basketball as well yeah, right. so you know just a standing prayer a drop step in basketball everyone knows how to drop step right. to box out an opponent in the it, now add a drop step and then all of a sudden now you're playing tennis, forehand, sure. backhand, pain-free. So he's eliminated the uh, primary mechanism, not by pulling his knees to his chest, but by coming up with a strategy that has now mitigated the cause and made him stronger. It's probably more pickleball in the United States than tennis now. Uh, that's kind of taken over. So you know, yeah, it, it has around here as well. Oh, it does. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I don't play either, but uh... no, I don't either. So, <laughs> by the way, I want to mention that you showed a model from Dynamic Disc Designs. Uh, we have that same model. Oh, I, 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 I have them all. I have probably. Uh, 35 models. I don't know if you know the story, but uh, I met Jerome Fryer, who makes these wonderful models right. uh, quite a number of years ago, and he was learning the mechanisms of back pain as we were refining them and whatnot. And he said, sure. oh, I can make a model. And uh, what a brilliant job he's done. He you know, does. You see the sacroiliac joints move. You can see joint stability and and uh, all. It, they're the most biofidelic models. They're they're just fabulous for teaching people and patients. Well, since we're on that, do you mind if we talk about uh, what you normally see uh, as far as symptoms, as far as joint instability, and if you want to show it on the spine? This was the best demonstration I saw of this ever. I mean, it just explained it to me so well. I thought it was fantastic. Yes. When you damage a knee ligament, let me just, uh, if I can, uh, Bob, just let me get one of Jerome's fabulous knees because people seem to understand knees a little bit better. So there's the anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments and they prevent the knee from sliding back and forth. So mm -hmm. everybody knows that when you damage a knee ligament, the joint becomes shear lax like yeah. this and that's what triggers the pain rather than gliding nicely you get these micro movements well the spine experiences the same phenomenon when you get a disc bulge or a little bit of a flattened disc it's like letting air out of your car tire the tire bulges on the road and then gotcha. the car's a bit sloppy driving on the road so you add stiffness by adding air stiffness or turgor. So let's look at um, a pelvic ring and L5, L4, L3. This joint here has been made, it's been damaged. Sure. So it's lost its stiffness. This joint is normal. 
and this joint is normal, but you can't see it on an MR or an X-ray. You have to physically test it. Now I'm going to apply a twisting motion. Do you see how the majority of the emotion yep. is taking place at the joint that has been damaged? So we could do a uh, uh, anterior posterior shear test with our thumbs on the patient and they say, oh yeah, there's my pain. And the character of it is if a patient says, you know, when I roll over in bed, I get a sure. sharp pain or I bend forward and flush the toilet and ah, I get this little movement catch. Those usually are these micro movements. And you can also see in the facet joints that Jerome has painted red, they too are taking up a majority sure. of motion. So uh, back pain follows a cascade. Usually the disc will become problematic and two or three years later, then the facets become uh, sure. uh, involved. But the muscle architecture around the spine, which is a flexible rod, is absolutely brilliant. When years ago, when we were modeling all of this, we would try and come up with better designs. You know, people would say, well, why don't we have a ball and socket joint in our spine? Or, yeah. you know, why do we have these muscles? Because it forms a perfect guy wire system to allow you to move. We'd, we'd measure Middle Eastern belly dancers doing all sorts yeah. of fabulous things. And then we would measure a power lifter. Well, one of our people, Brian Carroll, just uh, set the squat record of 1,306 pounds, oh, if you can That's believe nuts. that. But, but can you imagine taking a stack of oranges, a flexible rod, and putting a load on it? The oranges would fly apart. Right. So spines need this guy wire system. But when I mentioned earlier, if you can learn to give a little bit of stiffness by bracing the abdominal muscles, or sometimes it's pulling down the shoulders, posting down, and uh, that adds just sufficient stiffness. And, and people misinterpret this. Sometimes they think, oh, they have to really brace as if they're going to be punched in the stomach. No, that's not it at all. It's tuning just like every other joint in the body. But if you can tune out that micro movement, and then, as I said, do something like a short stop squat, all of a sudden that micro movement is arrested. And the interesting thing about so many back injuries that involve the disc, um, Bill Kirkaldi Willis, who's passed away now, but he was such a clinical mentor of mine when I was a young fellow. You probably remember uh, Professor Kirkaldi uh, Willis. I don't well. actually, sorry. He, he wrote a wonderful book called Managing Back Pain. And he was really the first to come up with this notion of the degenerative cascade. So a person has a normal spine, they damage the disc, and the joint becomes unstable. Sure it loses its stiffness. So now it's subject to micro movements. But over time, the body's reaction to those micro movements is to grow arthritic bone. And that now, like what's happened with Brad, has stiffened and stabilized the joint. And so it's normal, it becomes injured and unstable, and then the cascade continues and then it comes completely stable as it fuses. <laughs> the joints Absolutely. above and below are now responsible for all right. of the motion and whatnot. So 
you know, we go through those cascades. So I guess what I'm getting to is uh, the good news is after 10 years, that joint will stiffen up. Exactly. Stop bending it around and delaying its eventual stabilization or uh, fusion, as you call it, which is nature's fusion. It starts to gristle up right. and uh, the pain goes away. So the bad news is, well, you've lost a bit of motion, but the good news is you, you've, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I, I have zero pain. I used to have spine instability in my 30s. I'm in my mid 60s now. I don't have any back pain. I feel fabulous. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've used your, uh, after reading your book, I used it with many patients as far as getting out of bed and tightening because they were getting pains with the micro movements and just had them tighten up and that, the shock in their face would be uh, really uh, quite satisfying. Oh, <laughs> isn't it? They could get out of bed without pain. It's, it's such, you know, I know there's so much these days on cognitive behavioral therapy as an approach for back pain patients. Yes. But to me, it's, it is just so simple to show a patient how to do something that causes them pain without pain. And then they are empowered. Yes. That was the best cognitive behavioral therapy going. What you mean? I'm in control of this. Yes, you are. Wow. Why didn't anyone tell me this before? I've, I'm in control. I'm, I'm not a victim. Uh, you know, it's a, a fabulous uh, yeah, psychological. That actually was one of my questions there. for you. You know, people present with uh, symptom magnifications and stuff like that. But it's funny. Your answer is the exact same answer I saw Robin McKenzie give. Um, was like, if you teach them how to take the pain away, they find out that goes away. Yeah. Oh, you know, we're, we're mentioning these great names like Robin McKenzie and Bill Kirkaldi Willis, who, again, were, were colleagues and mentors uh, of mine. What, what a fabulous. Did you ever meet Robin? I McKenzie? did not meet him, no. Oh, what a, what a fabulous fella. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I met Brian Mulligan, but I haven't met. Uh... Oh, I've, I've met Brian as well. He's another He's fabulous person. He's a character. <laughs> yeah, he was fun. Took, took a couple classes from him. So um, yeah. I want to talk about your three-hour assessment. Yeah. Um, uh, how, after someone goes through your three-hour assessment, um, how often are they seen or does that vary greatly? Or, I mean, because a lot of them are coming to we're coming to Canada to see you. Um, yeah. Uh, well, when someone comes to see me, they usually just see me once, believe it or not. So those really? statistics that I gave you of our success rate was from one visit. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. So I, I don't need to treat people. I show them what causes their pain, and then they treat themselves. Wow. Now, I need to expand that answer. When a person comes here, I invite their clinicians to come with them. Oh, you and do? Some of the, uh, yes, absolutely. So the, the clinician learns with the patient, uh, first of all, how to assess whatever it was they had, because obviously they, they'd missed that. And then uh, the strategies that might have a progression to them. 
So then here are your benchmarks. When the patient reaches this benchmark, now start thinking about this. So um, usually there's seven or eight components to uh, the patients, uh, what we give them. The first of all is a thorough understanding of what their pain mechanism is. The next part is what are the past impediments that's caused failure before? Now, if I say, well, we need you to go for a walk several times throughout the day, short walks, and then they say, but I can't do that. Why? Well, I don't feel safe in my neighborhood. I can't go for a walk uh, after dark. What's the uh, chance that that person is going to comply? It's zero. So we have to deal with addressing all of the impediments and figure out a way to make it workable. So that's the first bit. Then the second bit is what we call the position of respite. Do you have a strategy that when you get fed up and worn out of your pain, what can you do to take it away? It might be a tummy lay, it might be sitting a certain way, it might be whatever. Then, and, and by the way, that, that can be very detailed, but so simple. We might have a person lay on their tummy. Oh, this causes extension pain. Good. Put a pillow under your hips. Ah, that took my pain away. Wait a second. Oh, no, that's not good. Turn your head the other way. Press your eyebrow one pound. Oh, that took my pain away. That's sweet. Do you oh, see what I, I mean? Sure. Yeah. So we just nuance the heck out of it. But when someone says to me, they can't find pain unless they have something like cancer, (laughs) if it's mechanical back pain, we will find a way to allow that joint to fall into a sweet spot where nothing is irritated. Um, And then after that, we then give them movement tools. Can you get on and off the toilet, in and out of your car, brush your teeth, put on your socks in the morning, all pain-free? tie your shoes you know get the simple stuff right don't keep picking the scab all day long just living life uh and then we give them an expansion to transfer it into real life so i think we did the first and really the only study on is what you do in the clinic as a clinician transferring to real life they can do their physio exercises but are they benefiting in real life. So the next bit on spine hygiene is how to transfer those movement skills to real life. How do you unload, you know, uh, well, we're in Canada. So how do you pull a case of beer out of the back of the (laughs) the car? (laughs) You know, or if you're in Minnesota, or if you're in Minnesota, how do you carry two cases of beer (laughs) into your fishing boat? (laughs) You know, so either way. And then I, you know, if I was with uh, Robin McKenzie, he would say, one bottle at a time, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was typical Robin. But anyway, um, so uh, then the next bit is mobility. What, what, oh, I got to talk to you about something in just a minute. Remind me of that. But um, what things are a little bit stuck that if we could free up, your back would be better? So we've already determined from the assessment that your lack of hip mobility 
is causing too much sure. movement responsibility in your back. If we could free yeah. up your hips a little bit, or every time you rock back, your right knee's getting hung up, that goes to your hip, that goes to your pelvis, that goes to your spine. You know, we're looking for linkage restrictions. Sure. Then the next part is stability. Are you optimizing the stability parts of your human linkage. Then we get into, are there neural considerations? So do you have specific issues with femoral nerve roots, sciatic nerve roots and whatnot? And we may end up uh, flossing them or whatever the situation requires. And then we have a talk about future strength patterns. Can you competently push? Can you competently pull? Can you competently carry? And the carry might be uh, a bag of groceries or it might be picking your child out of the crib uh, or it might be picking your grandchild up off the ground. So, you know, we, we then expand those. So that is uh, the components of what we give that person over the three hours. And uh, by the way, sometimes it's less and sometimes it's more. Mm. So it, now if we have an athlete where we've done all that to address their primary pain concerns, then we have to tune their body. They are elite and their goal is a gold medal, a world gold medal. Sure. So then I may become part of a consulting team after, after that. Yes. And we are refining, you, you know, how many mechanics in the U S uh, can, can build uh, a car to win Indianapolis 500 three years in a row, maybe 10 out of 30,000. Right. You get what I mean? So yes. at that point to really tune human performance and I'm, I'm just there for back perspectives. Of course they have their full team, for all, but it's working with the team. So obviously those relationships are longer lasting, but no, it's just uh, one visit. <laughs> you wanted to remind you you were to tell me about something oh well i was just going to say you know uh i retired from the university when i first started you know computers weren't invented yet and uh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. remember those days yes i do and, you know and i would answer real mail with a typewriter and people yeah. say what's that but you know, we would we would we were out of our chair. We were always moving right. and working in the clinic and the lab and whatnot. And then slowly the job turned me into a computer operator to the point where students didn't even want to come to office hours anymore. They'd say, "Oh, can we do this on the computer?" And I say, "No. <laughs> I'm, yeah. How can I demonstrate something to you or you know get some?" palpatory skills with your hands over a, a computer you've got to work at it and uh, so I was becoming so unhealthy being a yeah. computer operator when that, that's not what I signed up to do so I retired and now I am so I, I'm, I'm just at the prime of my health I've never felt better or stronger and uh so two days a week, and I do a lot of physical work, you know, we heat our house with wood, so I'm splitting sure. firewood and, you know, I live a rural life now, but uh, 
I consider the seven days a week cycle and two days a week I'll strength train. Now, if it just happens to be splitting firewood, okay, that's my strength training. But if it right. isn't, I get, I get into BackFit Pro HQ and I'll throw some weights around. Sure. Two days a week, I do mobility. Now, when I was in my 30s, Bob, I never had to do mobility. I was right. fine. I had no need for mobility. But now, you know, I've broken my neck. I've, I've had hip replacements. And, you know, there's a few things in my body that are getting a bit stuck that I have to work on very strategically. And then two days a week, I do something cardio you know i'll go for a bike ride sure. or a ski in the winter or whatever and then one day a week i do nothing that is the day of rest and when you look at all of the great religions that have survived for millennia they all have one rest day, day of and, rest. Yeah. and you know and that is so necessary for the full human health system let one day adapt and yeah, I'm terrible you know, at that. <laughs> when I, when I live that life as I'm doing now I feel fabulous and I, I wish Great. you know some people need much more physical work and stress sure and some need one or two days without it <laughs> absolutely absolutely um, how are you doing on time, Dr. McGill? You... Uh, it's uh, 12.30. I've got a patient in an hour, so I'm fine. Oh, can we go another 15 minutes? Or oh, so? sure. It is, as long as you're getting something out of this. Oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> I, I just had so many questions I want to ask. And, uh, you know, with our insurance system here, we can't do a three-hour assessment. But I'm thinking we could split it up among you know, several treatments. Is that what you'd recommend in the United States if they were trying? No. Oh, what do you recommend then? Go private pay or? Uh, I, I don't want to sound arrogant, Bob. And this is, I'm sorry, this is going to sound arrogant. Uh, if it were me, there are, obviously for what we do, there's no insurance billing code. There's no billing code for a, right. a, a, a very thorough assessment to get to the cause of a person's back pain. Don't you think that's a real flaw in the system? Absolutely. So there are insurance companies who know us and they will send people and pay us cash for the time spent. And that's yes. But the rider on that, and this is the arrogance, you have to be good. Right. So I say to them, they don't audit. When was the last time an insurance company came and audited your practice to see if you were any good or not, or if you were any they different don't. than the physio? They don't. That, isn't that astounding that the whole medical system from top to bottom is not audited? Right. You don't know which surgeons are okay. causing arachnoiditis in one patient after another. I mean, you know... When I was at the university, I knew which surgeons you don't send a patient to because the outcome is awful. And they're still all working yeah. because there's no auditing of the system. Insurance companies have to start auditing who makes a difference. Now, I, I uh, uh, most U.S. 
companies, and I think there's even some uh, legislation in the U.S. that they can't send patients out of country, but mm. some still do. And uh, I've worked with them in the past, and they know our score. So it's very sure. cost-effective for them to send exactly. a person up. Um, certainly, uh, sports organizations and whatnot will send uh, people. That's, that's yeah. not an issue. And by the way, they are insurers. Even the team has an insurance of every really? player. Oh, yeah. And uh, it ultimately, it's the insurance. And there are ways around it in that I don't see anyone, excuse me, without a patient, without a uh, physician referral. So it's that physician's referral that says this is necessary information for us yeah. to do our best work. So that's another way around it. But uh, getting back to your relationship, you have to go to the insurance companies and say, if you're serious about the end goal of helping people, which I don't think they could care less. Yeah, All they exactly. care about is the, is the bottom dollar. Exactly. But if, if I can, uh, we worked with an HMO in Montana and they learned very quickly that they could get their physios uh, to have success with back pain with fewer visits. So at the end of the day, they weren't paying out, you know, whatever the right. statute exactly. was, we, we will pay for 20 visits. Well, if I only needed six, that was a cost savings. Right. But anyway, that's the conversation that uh, you have to have. But we just, uh, I, I charge for my time and that's it. Gotcha. Um, we were talking about Robin McKenzie. I, I, I just know you, you call it the floppy press up. Uh, it, I get the sense you're not really a fan of the full press up. No. No. You feel it's too much stress? Well, I, I've, I've measured uh, both the efficacy and the mechanics. And it's interesting, when Robin was alive, um, uh, I would, uh, you know, he would invite me to a McKenzie meeting. Yeah. Um, but since he's passed, uh, they want me to come, but they, uh, I shouldn't say this, they don't want to pay a speaker's fee or, yeah. and then I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Right. Um, but I think I've done more research on their approaches than they themselves. Now, maybe that's unfair. I would say at least up until seven or eight years ago, that was uh, the way it was. Maybe they've done a lot of work since. Sure. So now I can answer the question. So a floppy push-up is the patient lays prone on a table and presses up. They leave their pelvis on the table and they press up their spine into extension as far as whatever is determined by the uh, clinician. And they repeat it. And the theory is that you pump the posteriorly extruded nucleus back into the, uh, the, 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 the uh, nucleus of the disc where it's supposed to be. Uh, I, I don't believe that. Now, you may vacuum. It's not a pumping. You may vacuum it in, but we found it's absolutely just as effective for the patient to lay prone on the table and then slowly get into an extended posture if they need to and then maybe put two fists under the chin or something like that but that prone traction that i told you about mm -hmm. where we will pull and then raise into extension 
from the leg end rather than the, the head end gives you much more technique nuances to really propel that. Now, here's the things that we found. Large skeletoned people have discs that are limacon shaped, like a lima bean. Mm -hmm. Now, if they have a posterior fissure going to the edge of the limacon, they respond so much better to a McKenzie extension treatment than an ovoid disc, which is more round like this. And there the pattern of the disc bulge is diffuse. It's not pointed at the edge of the limacon. Gotcha. So it's so interesting that a heavier limacon, a heavier skeleton limacon shaped disc is much more responsive to a McKenzie uh, approach. Um, I think I read you also said that uh, if they have 75% of the disc left, they respond. Oh, Bob, you're well read. Good for you're, you. Are, you are really impressing me. You know our stuff, which is good. So if the disc has been compressed more than 75% of its original height, the chance that a McKenzie style of therapy is going to assist reduce the disc bulge is very, very slender. Uh, so you need hydraulic behavior and sufficient disc height. Um, that, that's another uh, determinant of all of this. Another determinant is the adaptations that the person's spine has uh, already undergone because of chronic exposure. Let's take a yoga master, someone who doesn't lift heavy weights, they're slender, they like doing and practicing yoga. When they uh, flex forward, typically the disc bulge is on the anterior part of the spine. Whereas if you take a, someone who trains weight training, CrossFit, uh, yeah. weights like what you see here, they tend to get a disc bulge that grows when you bend forward posteriorly. See, two entirely different mechanisms. So again, uh, the McKenzie approach would make worse a very flexible yoga type of spine, and yet it would be more therapeutic for someone who's had an injury from lifting or they sit too much or that kind of thing. So do, do you see how, again, it's nuances Absolutely. upon nuances. Yeah, you know? right. Now, I, you know, I've had patients who did the McKenzie method without a uh, disc problem. And I always thought that maybe it helped, you know, get more movement, movement in the facets. You know what I mean? Like if you had some facets that were kind of stuck and they gained a little more motion, it seemed like they, they did better. They had less pain. Well, they may do, but why is the facet getting stuck? Exactly. Why is it? Well, uh, I can show again Jerome's lovely models. Here's, uh, here's a, a model. Uh, again, uh, yeah, it's, is it this one? Yeah, so um, all facet pairs have an angle. And uh, right. it's interesting, the ones that have open angles are the ones that have spondylitic fractures, like what uh, Brad has. And uh, he's probably good at playing golf and has some flexibility to his spine. Um, but uh, chances are he won't be playing middle linebacker. It's, sure. it's interesting. So 
there is a pair of closed facets on this joint and these are much more open. Now we're going to bend into extension and watch what happens. I'm gonna release the spine. This joint still has mobility. This one is, is stuck and I'm gonna pop it off. You can watch it. Did you see it pop yeah. off? Yeah. yeah. So those facets have already bound up. In other words, if, if they're getting stuck, you got a problem. And uh, I wouldn't be pressing those articular surfaces into extension. I would let them settle. And uh, anyway, you see what I mean? There's much more motion at these ones. The ones that are getting stuck, I wouldn't bind them up and grind them. Sure. And you recommend the, uh, uh, we call it the cat camel, where you're yeah. in I mean, that one, it, it probably does the same thing in a safer manner. Exactly. We measured that years ago. So the safest way now, you know, if someone doesn't have back pain, these aren't big issues. Sure. And people misinterpret me say, Oh, well, McGill, you're making everyone fragile. And I said, No, you didn't listen to me. I was talking about a person who has a fragile back. And our job is to get them out of back pain. If you don't have back pain, go do gymnastics and have fun. Sure. You know, that's what it's all about at the end of the day but what you're talking about a cat camel is a person's on their hands and knees right oh i don't need to demonstrate it yeah. but they're on their hands and knees and they hump up like a camel yeah. and like a cat and to cycle the back back and forth there's not there's very minimal compressive load it's what we gotcha. call a three-point bend so if i take a a stick and i create a three-point bend through it uh there's no shear stress so it's, uh, you know, I couldn't make it into a cantilever and just stand there and do it because that would trigger pain in a, in a very, uh, you know, easily triggered back. Sure. But the cat camel on all fours is the most spine friendly way just to get a little gentle motion uh, going. There's no stress to speak of in facet joints and whatnot. So that's how we converged on that. And I yeah. might say that some people, um, it's funny cultures around the world. The American culture is more is better. Right. And in this case, more exactly. is not better. Only six or seven cycles is sufficient to get rid of the viscosity, the, the, the feeling of tightness. Doing 20 doesn't add any more benefit. Sure. So just, just five or six cat camels, if all you want to do is to experience some gentle motion, there's some clinical guidelines for you. Fantastic. Um, again, I want to be respectful of your time. I, I just maybe two more questions. Um, yeah. Just your Bob, I'm enjoying this. As I oh, said, we 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 should be out on the back porch somewhere. <laughs> I mean, these are questions I've had for a long time. But uh, what is your thoughts about piriformis syndrome or deep pluteal syndrome? Called. I mean, do you think it's a thing? Do you think? Do you, have you seen much of it yourself, or what are your thoughts? Well, absolutely, it's a thing. Um, but it has to be guided by an assessment. I will say it's tremendously over 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's not a diagnosis, but the, the, the term, the label, you've got piriformis syndrome is way overused because the majority of people with, uh, they've been told they have piriformis syndrome because they have pain over the back of the hip joint, deep in the butt cheek. Right. And, uh, but most of the time that will be re a referred pain from their back through the sciatic nerve because the sciatic nerve goes, as you know, right underneath right. piriformis. Um, now, having said that, there are people, no question, the root mechanism is something to do with piriformis. Mm. Now, why is that? When you look at the architecture of muscles, you know that if you have a muscle with, uh, it's a really meaty muscle with a long series of sarcomeres. In other words, the, the, the strand of the muscle is very long and they have a short tendon. That muscle can produce great length excursions. If you have another muscle architecture with a short bit of muscle and a long tendon, it can't create much sure. length change. So when you look at a muscle like piriformis, it is a long muscle and, and it, it's, it has substantial length change. So if it is frictioning the sciatic nerve, that could be a problem. Now, why would that be? Well, if you, uh, I'm, I'm just giving some examples that again, the assessment would show. But if you were to watch a person and they had true piriformis now, so I'm not just talking about referred sciatic pain, and you saw the right knee buckle every time they ran, that buckling is load and friction sure. on the, so, if you okay. said, all right, we could work on the mechanics, we could give you an orthotic on that side or something to try and see if we could change that mechanism as your pain gone. Well, some will say, you know, a week, my that, that piriformis syndrome is now gone. But, you know, I've seen it where I remember a high performance cyclist came and uh, it wasn't till I saw the MR the sciatic nerve actually pierced right through that. the middle. Yeah, yeah. it was a, a, an anatomic anomaly. Sure. Now, what, what can you do there? Time off, let oh. it settle. And uh, I, I do think that for those kinds of things too, sometimes injections, of certain sure. cocktails if you go for someone who really knows the cocktails can get sure. the, the nerve to slide once again but um anyway th there's just a little bit of an opener oh, on uh, piriformis but you know some people really have it and suffer sure. and uh others it's a pure misdiagnosis right and that's what i suspected um my last question, and I, I, I just want to talk to you about the nerve flossing and how often do you incorporate it and, and generally what circumstances do you see where you want to uh, use nerve flossing? R what, right. The lower well, yes, there are 
well, first of all, there's a femoral nerve root and a sciatic nerve root right. that goes to the uh, uh, lower extremity that are involved with uh, radiating pain. When you do an assessment, um, let's just say you've flexed a person and they flex their head and they say, as I'm moving my head, I'm getting a radiating symptom to my, let's say it's my right great toe. So I've got a friction on the lumbar fifth uh, nerve root. But then when I get there, the pain stops. So then I lay them prone over a table and I will start to migrate the nerve back and forth. And it's only creating the symptoms as the nerve is moving. Then I'll, I'll maybe do some reflex testing. I'll change the curvature of the spine, change the shape of the canal and the foramens and find, oh, there's no friction in that position, but there's friction in this position. What the Japanese showed a number of years ago is if you can get a nerve root to floss, it creates its own pathway. But we call it tickling the dragon's tail. As you know, in some cases of friction, you will create a raging fire in that sure. nerve. So we then do um, some testing to see if this is, what, what's the chance of us really creating the, 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 the lubrication, if you will, um, versus the, the friction? Well, we'll uh, pull a leg from below with maybe a leg raise and we'll have the head out over the end of the patient table and they will extend at the same time. And we'll say, ah, yeah, the nerve is moving well if your spine is in this position and uh, away we go. But uh, again, it's, it's assessment is king. It will sure. show us. And uh, I've also learned this. Sometimes I'm really surprised. Uh, we've had uh, uh, cases of arachnoiditis. So a little tether on a nerve root, usually post-surgical. And uh, if they try... Uh, certain movements that creates a nerve tension and they get radiating symptoms. Just a little gentle pull every day or their nerve flossing might be simply, let's go for a walk. Here's them going for a walk and we'll say, get tall, swing your arms about the shoulders. And now what a wonderful nerve floss uh, that is. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just thinking of this one uh, patient where uh, his heel was just on fire all the time. But after about three months of moving in this way to get the nerve to gently start to move, but not enough to trigger real symptoms, sure. he said, I, well, I was dragging the garbage pail down the driveway to put out for the uh, garbage collection. And he said, I bing, it just let go. And I felt a deep itch in my low back, symptoms in my heel wow. left just gone and uh he still does nerve mobilization uh, uh to this day but there's I, uh, I just want to say you do cover that in the book a bit um some nerve flossing um yes you know i i just uh read um uh, uh quite a nice book uh i finished it last night actually on adhesive arachnoiditis and uh, 
the uh, clinician went into great detail on the uh, various drug cocktails to try and get the nerve as lubricated as possible uh, to let go and, mm. and that kind of thing. Plus all the complications, you know, you run into people suffering with some of the uh, collagen disorders, um, sure. uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, yeah. and, you know, hypermobility and things like that, which those people as a cluster tend to get more of these uh, uh, oh, adhesions yeah. and some of the uh, cocktails they can take to uh, reduce inflammation and that kind of thing. And then yeah. something else just popped into my head. I, I read a paper not too long ago on how uh, strategic flossing really accelerates the clearing out of inflammatory soup post-injury or, or, or post-surgical as well. So, it, you know, we can go on for, for hours, all the combinations and permutations of when these things are effective and when they're poison. And... Well, it's a, the body just has amazing capaci capacity to heal itself if you let it, or you put it in a position. <laughs> It's just amazing to me. That's the key. Yeah. <laughs> That's the part that so many people struggle with. Yeah. How do we allow our body to regenerate instead of doing everything we do to make it degenerate? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, again, I've held you way over time here, Dr. McGill. This has been such an honor and a pleasure. I, I just, I'm going to replay this myself a couple of times so I can uh, listen to the answers and, and, uh, it just, I, I still got more. I hope to maybe get you in the future again. Uh, but, uh, well, well we, we, we can, we can do a little follow-up sometime in the future. Yeah, uh, that'd be awesome. That'd yeah. Be awesome. Yeah. So, well, I've enjoyed this, Bob. Likewise. Great honor. Great honor. Yeah.